I'm Tom Morello, host of Maximum Firepower, a weekly podcast focusing on the music, the moments, and the movements that have shaped my worldview and left an indelible mark on me as an artist and activist. Correct with Maximum Firepower. You and me. This is Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. I'm Tom Morello, and welcome to Maximum Firepower. I am joined this week by Brother Wayne Kramer of the mighty MC5, the Motor City 5, the originators, in my view, of punk rock music, and Chris Dose, Chris number two of Anti Flag, longtime punk rock stalwarts and a uh, great friend, great bass player, uh, and great spokesman for not only the punk rock community, but for all those trying to make a more humane and just planet. Welcome to Maximum Firepower, gentlemen. Thank you. Hello. Happy to be here. Hello. So today we are going to be talking about the experience of being in a protest band, broadly speaking. So let's start with you, Wayne. So, Wayne, what drew you to mixing music? And politics. You know, I was part of a generation where there was agreement amongst almost all young people that the government was driving the nation in the wrong direction. You know, the corruption and the hypocrisy was just more than we as a generation could bear. I mean, the Vietnam War was illegal, undeclared, immoral. And we just couldn't justify it. We couldn't justify the idea that people of color were disenfranchised. They couldn't vote like white people vote. That, you know, there was an emerging awareness that things we did to the air and the water was going to come back and haunt us, you know, that there was this environment. It was a new word. But this was something we should be paying attention to, you know, and things like drug laws, you know, that marijuana shouldn't be classified with heroin, you know, in the same legal category. And that only took 50 years to get right <laughs> up to today. So the things that I was concerned about, I shared with, I think, everybody else from my generation. We were all against the war. We were all for civil rights for the most part. So to write songs about true blue, the moon in June had no appeal <laughs> to me. I wanted to talk about real things. I always thought reality was way more interesting than fantasy. I, I still do. So to talk about our feelings about the war, our feelings about the police, that was the only thing that was interesting. So there was no separation for me, between politics and music. It was all part of the experience of being a young person. And I was a musician. I had a band. And we incorporated what was going around in our neighborhood and in the country and in the whole world into the art that we were creating. I, I never saw two different things. It was always mm -hmm. just one thing to me. And you, Chris, because you were in Anti-Flag as a 17 or 18 year old right and 16 yeah 16 year old 16 year old yeah. bass player in the band and so for you like what drew you as a 16 year old to join yeah. a band called anti-flag and you know expressing yourself politically through the songs and the bass 
Yeah. So my brother uh, sold drugs and cops were always fucking with us. My father was a piece of shit. He was he was a child molester and uh, he molested my sister. And that was a, a whole thing that I was, you know, learning to deal with at that young age. But it, it all kind of culminated with this hatred of authority. And, mm -hmm. you know, I remember distinctly being nine years old at the bus stop and a cop pulled up and he was like, hey, you're Mike's little brother. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, we're going to get him. And at this time, I was learning about, you know, growing up without a father. And then I just had a cop tell me I wasn't going to have a dad. And then I went home and my brother was doing the things that <laughs> shitty teenagers do. And uh, I heard this song and it was Fuck the Police by N.W.A. And at nine years old, I was like, I like that song now. And I put my MC Hammer tape in the trash. <laughs> it just became a desperate search for music that questioned authority. And obviously I did, you know, I grew up in Pittsburgh. I had very little in common with those that grew up in Compton. And so I was able to find bands like Bad Religion and the Dead Kennedys and the MC5 who had these messages and agendas built into their songs. Some of them were too smart for me, like a bad religion. So I relied heavily on a dead Kennedy's because so they said the, the F word and that was appealing to a child. And then, you know, you couple that with what you grow up around. My, my uncle worked in the steel mill and he lost his job in lieu of cheap labor. And that idea is ingrained in Pittsburgh that we saw corporate globalization, the scourge of the earth, take away the livelihood of so many people that being politically active is just a part of our town. So mm -hmm. all of the bands that came out of it had this edge to them or, you know, this um, want to better our neighbors and better the livelihood of the people that were around us in our community. And so I think when you couple that all together, and then obviously the first invasion of the Gulf War is happening around the birth of anti-flag and a similar thing to Wayne, where you're looking around at your friends and your family and you're saying, these people are all going to go fight and kill and die in a war that makes no sense. How do we stop this? Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, we called our band anti-flag and turned a flag upside down and flew a distress signal. And we never thought we would, you know, get outside of our mom's garages. And, uh, you know, one day Tom Rello calls you and tells you to go on tour with Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> and, you, and, and you recognize that these stories and these messages have reach and have value. You know, we're from Pennsylvania. We supported Mumia Abu-Jamal. And then we got to that first Rage Against the Machine show and the entire Philadelphia Police Department was protesting the show. And I was like, well, that's a lot more power than us passing out some flyers. <laughs> it's a fucking VFW. Like, how do we tap? into this? How do we extrapolate on these ideas? And it, and that was a real defining moment where you go all the way from the kid who hears fuck the police by NWA to being in an arena surrounded by cop cars in protest of the musical event that's happening there. And you're like, well, I finally poked my stick into the back of the authority figure. And, and I feel like what well, this is the path. And you have those um, moments of validation. You know, there are a lot more losses than there are victories whenever you're putting forward empathetical viewpoints all the time. But the moments that you do win or that you do have validation, those give you an immense amount of strength to continue going on. 
I remember that show well and the, and the, the cops protesting the Rage Against the Machine show there. We instructed our tour manager to count the number of police that were in the picket line protesting the venue. And it was, it was size, it was like 159 or something like that. And then we said, you need to go, please go to Dunkin' Donuts and get exactly 159 donuts and hand one donut out to each cop in line from the band. And they Fuck. did that. And that, 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 did, that didn't make them happier, but... It... No. <laughs> Made you happier. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so, so, so for me, it was like I was, uh, you know, I grew up in a radical household. My mom, Mary Morello, who's 97 now and you know, still remains the most radical and most popular member of the Morello family. Uh, she, you know, there were the, like the books in her book. We, it was a, I grew up in an archly conservative small town in Illinois, Libertyville, Illinois, about an hour north of Chicago. And you know, it was the only person of color to reside within its borders. The Democratic Party didn't even run candidates in Lake County, Illinois. It was so conservative. And here was my mom. Here was my mom who was this left-wing radical public high school teacher in this archly conservative school. And so the home I grew up in, you know, we had pictures of Kwame and Kruma and Che Guevara on the walls and the bookcase was filled with you know a Chebe it was like it was like and Fanon and and I just sort of assumed you know the house next door and the house next door to that also had these points of view because <laughs> I thought that's what houses had and they had moms right. who thought like and you know and then when I was you know, 16 15 16 years old and began to realize that the opinions expressed and the point of view expressed in my household was very different than the community that I lived in. I began self-identifying as an activist and as a radical at like 16, year, 16 years old. was involved in an underground paper in the school, but my heroes from a very early age were like international revolutionaries. And then... Unfortunately, I started playing guitar at 17 years old. And like I had a clear path to, you know, fighting in the jungles of El Salvador, which is what was going to be the plan. And then I had a calling and it was a calling that was to play the electric guitar. I had no choice in the matter. I didn't choose it. It chose me. And now reconciling those two things of something that it was clear to me that I was born to do, which is to mm -hmm. play electric guitar and something that I was born to be which is someone who has to engage with the world and try to pull out all the stops to make it a better place was a huge conflict. I grew up on heavy metal music and the only people that I adored who played guitars, their band sang about wizards and the devil and, 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 yeah. gro and groupies. And there was nothing, there was no, I was like, I'm, I'm sunk. You know, like, you know, and then for me, it was, it was the clash and it was public enemy who, who was, it's like some people are turned onto politics by a band. That was not the case with me. I was already there, but it made me feel not alone. And it made me feel that there was a way to be in the world and to express myself in the world that also took into account that I was cursed with being a guitar player and that there was some route from that electric guitar to being a part of that com community of musicians that was trying to make a difference. My first song, I got the, the, my first class record was London Calling. And, you know, I had written songs before, but I wrote them kind of aping the metal themes that were, and punk, you know, like Devo and stuff like that. And so the first song I wrote after having gotten the Clash record was a song called The Salvador Death Squad Blues. And it was a big scandal in my in my band. And like they're like, well, I don't, do we want to? And I dragged that song. I should maybe one day actually record it. But I, but I dragged that song around forever in every like cover band I was in. And no one wanted to touch it with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, can't you just shred? You like, you like, you like Crazy Train too, right? I'm like, I love Crazy Train. Like, well, I'll play that one too, but we have to do Salvador Descott blues, damn it.
All right. So Wayne Kramer. I, 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 we will no, gladly <laughs> do. We will gladly have that song anytime you anytime, need to okay, get Okay. All right. Good. 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 I'll, yeah. I'll, I, I have the lyrics, so I got to sort of figure out. I'm Tom Morello. This is Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. We're talking with Brother Wayne Kramer, the MC5, and Chris Dose of Anti-Flag about our experiences being in protest bands. So, Wayne, recently there's a, a, the film, The Trial of Chicago 7, has been a very popular one, nominated for a lot of awards and whatnot. Now, what people might not know is that, well, The Trial of Chicago 7 has to do with the protests surrounding the Democratic National Convention in 1968 in Chicago, where there were these huge riots, pol police-provoked riots. It was a bloody mess. And there were a number of acts that were asked to perform at the protest for the 1968 convention. Uh, one of those acts was the MC5. There were a lot of other acts. The only act that didn't chicken out and actually played the gig was you and the MC5. Tell me about that day when the MC5 was in, in the midst of tear gas and the imminent sort of tremendous violence that was about to take place, what that was like for you and the band. Yeah, I, I have a, a little resentment about that film because they didn't ask me about it they didn't include the MC5's performance in it. And they did, from what I understand, I haven't seen the film yet, but from what I've heard, that the musical entertainment in the park was a trio of folk singers. I was outraged. I was outraged. That's correct. That's correct. Is that right? Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. And I was like, there was only one act that played. <laughs> And it wasn't Peter, Paul, and Mary, or whoever that was. It, was, <laughs> <laughs> it, it wasn't Puff the Magic Dragon that was happening. Yeah, No, yeah, that, it was, you know. uh, and I, I'm not being um, brave or cavalier in saying that it really wasn't that big a deal for us in that time period, because that, we did that anytime anyone ever asked. If somebody said, we're doing a benefit, do you guys want to play? Hell yes, well. Oh, play. I know that. I know that feeling. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's so it's so really refreshing to hear you say that because people come up all the time and they'll be like, "Do you remember you played this protest?" And I'll just be like, "We just yeah, there was them no all. did them all." Yeah. 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 And I mean, sometimes I I wonder, am I supposed to care more about yeah, this? Like, I, well, this is I, just the I have to, I, Yeah, like that's yeah, that's just the, that's a Tuesday, bro. That's a Tuesday. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's a Tuesday. We're, we're bro. trying to get our bands recognized too, you know, and the way yeah. to do that is play everywhere you can. Yeah. Any opportunity will will play. So I'll say I mean, this before before you continue, Wayne, that, that both of you got both Chris and you in the myriad of activist and charity oriented shows and tours I've been involved in. Whenever I've asked you guys to do a thing, you've all you're on the short list of people that always say yes. Yeah. You know, there are people who are you do it when they can. There are people who believe in causes. There are people that sort of are more tangentially related. But then there are people who are really committed to having their art be a sledgehammer for justice whenever and wherever they can. And both of you are on that list. Wayne, carry on. 68. So, I mean, MC. that, you know, that was part of our, our thinking that, you know, this was going to be an important gig. And we certainly wanted to put pressure on the Democrats to end the war. We looked at it as this is really a chance for organization. There was going to be a lot of people there and we were going to make a big statement. We got into town in the middle of the night. We played some little teen club up probably in Libertyville, about an hour north of Chicago. I assure you there were no teen clubs in Libertyville <laughs> okay. in 1968. <laughs> well, that, that, that paid for the trip. And yeah. uh, so we drove into Chicago after that gig, 
and, you know, very heavy vibes. We knew the Chicago Police Department were the biggest gang in town, that they were thugs. And we knew, you know, there was a high potential for things to go very bad. But, you know, that, that was also part of the territory in those days. And we, we got to the, uh, the park the next day, and uh, someone had offered us some hash brownies. And they said, be careful because they're very strong. So just eat one. So, of Uh-oh. course, I, I ate two. <laughs> and then, I, knew, I knew. I was I was wondering how many more than one it was going to be. That was what I was concerned about. And then about. the rest of the band, they didn't finish there, so I ate all theirs, too. So, <laughs> so we set up on the ground. They were supposed to have a flatbed truck and all that. Of course, you know, being yippies, they were completely disorganized. You know, in those days, bands carried their own PA systems with them. So we had to go over to the guy selling hot dogs. He had a hot dog cart, and he had electricity. So we took the cord over. Could we plug into your electricity? And we ran the whole band and the PA off of the hot dog stand's power. That's some punk rock shit, Wayne. That is some <laughs> punk rock shit right there. Make Wayne. it happen. Yeah. And, and, and uh, we played right down on the ground with the people. But you know, you guys have both played hundreds of outdoor gigs. And usually playing outdoors is fun. It's a different thing than playing in clubs or concerts. It's a, you know, outdoor is just, it's a different experience. But this day, it wasn't fun. And people in the crowd, we're not happy. And as we set up and I started watching what was happening, there were agent provocateurs in the crowd, you know, guys with short hair and fatigue jackets on, starting fights with hippies. And the Chicago police had these big ass uh, Harley tricycles and they were running them through the, you know, the kids are sitting down on the ground and they're running the motorcycles through the crowd, you know, running over kids and I mean, it's, it's bad, bad vibes. So we played our show. I, I'm, I'm going to explode a, a wonderful myth. Uh, there's a myth that the MC5 played for 12 hours. Um, that's not true. We didn't. I mean, I you, mean, were, you did you, have a lot of weed brownies. I was going to say, you ate, you, you, you ate like 15 hash brownies. How would you know? How would you know how long you played? I, I, re, I remember most of it. So, so um, we started our show. We did our regular, a regular set that we were doing, you know, 45-minute set. And um, towards the middle of it, a street theater group, an agiprop theater group came up, and they wanted to do their performance. And uh, it was an anti-war. They had these big puppet heads, and they were, one of them was LBJ. And so I'm improvising a score to their play. And, you know, I've got my feedback. <laughs> and the Chicago police brought a helicopter in on top of us and lowered, lowered the helicopter down, not unlike uh, the, in D.C. With the, with the BLM protest last summer. Put the helicopter right on top of us. And to me, as high as I was, 
it all worked beautifully. Like <laughs> the sound of the helicopter going womp, 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 fit right with what I was doing on the guitar. And the giant puppets. You know, and the puppets. Say. And I said, look, yeah. this is it. This is yeah. the whole oh package. God. You know, it's theater. Oh it's sound. God. It's live. It's, you know, I oh thought wow. it was brilliant personally. Oh, <laughs> and, and then we just, we finished up our set. And uh, I knew that the minute we stopped playing, the crowd wouldn't have a focal point and it would turn to violence. I'd seen it happen a dozen times before. So we threw our gear in the van and um, made a strategic retreat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, All the way back to Detroit? Yeah, and there was this beautiful girl that I had had my eye on for years and she was there and she needed a ride back to Detroit. So... Her and I had a wonderful drive from Chicago uh, to Detroit. The hand of fate. Yes. yes. It, it was a beautiful day. Yeah. Yes. Make uh, love, uh, not war. Yes. I, I, we did. I, I have a sidebar question for Wayne. Were you aware yeah. of any of the things that were going down in France? Because it was just a month or two prior that they were having there. But I know now it's easy for us to keep abreast of, you know, Arab Springs whenever they pop off. But in 68, is there any way to know that there is a cultural movement happening globally yeah. that is also... Yeah. There, there was, and we were well aware of it. There was a, a thing called the Underground Press Syndicate, which was a newspaper syndicate of of these underground newspapers and every every major city in America had them. And they were also in London and in Paris. And we were in touch with people all around the world. And we saw that, you know, the French had tore up the Sabone and, yeah, and uh, yeah. you know, that they were rioting in the streets. And, and that in Mexico, there was horrific um, murder by the uh, army of students and uh, yeah, we we clocked everything that was going on. We really felt we were part of, you know, it was young people against the older generation. That's yeah. that's where the line yeah. in the sand was for us. I mean, I can't tell you how many times when writing a song or working on artwork or whatever, my go-to is that period and the things that you all were doing. It, it's it's a fucking hand guide into how to be countercultural, but also have swagger and be cool. And the, the, not only the aesthetics of it, but the messaging of it still applies to every single political issue you see happening in America and around the world, frankly, right now. And so I just, I'm really grateful to hear that story and to know. Yeah. Um, I mean that, that period, uh, that period and, you know, your work and what was going on, the, the events you're describing, were certainly a mood board for every time I've ever thought about artwork for any video or album absolutely. cover or whatever. You know, it's like it, it's yeah, a combination. You're right about it's a combination of of intent and purpose and and like flair at the same time. You know what I mean? That there's a, you know, the the, the Black Panthers looked a certain way. You know, yeah, the, the with, Weather Underground spoke a certain way. You know, like Abby mm -hmm. Hoffman was a certain way. The MC5 had a, you know, their 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 intent was was razor sharp, but they were shaking their hips a certain way. You know, and, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and 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 for me, that's a thing that's like greatly missing from activism and political punk right now is is the idea. Of, 
and we talked about this earlier, that it's got to be cool. If you want to get that person who is in the middle and has no idea what's happening with them, uh, essentially, I, I think that that it's something that's lacking greatly within activist circles and political music and, and punk rock as a whole right now. This this idea that it's got to be so earnest and it can't be serious or it can't be cool. And and I think that one of the greatest gifts of, of a lot of those 68 movements was the fashion forward and the ability to be attractive to, to people that are in the middle or on the fence or, or are okay with life as normal. You know, if we're going to disrupt normalcy, you have to give people a reason and a purpose to do so. And I think that that's one of the most inspiring things that I saw from, from that activism. Yeah, uh, in the late 60s. So I'd like to thank you both. Thank you very much, Wayne Kramer. Thank you very much, Chris, for being on Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. The world isn't going to change itself. That's up to you. So until next time, take it easy, but take it. Right on. Let foes of justice tremble. This has been Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. Hear this episode again or listen to past shows right now on the SiriusXM app. Search Maximum Firepower. Firepower.